beautiful and he loves beauty and uh, all of us are blessed to varying degrees across the world with different blessings um and there's and we we should uh, we should enjoy the blessings um they are there uh, god has given them to us we enjoy them but we also use them as you said uh, in beneficial ways absolutely uh, wealth wealth and blessings are not there for us to hold on to and be possessive or possessive over they are opportunities for us to benefit others and thereby benefit ourselves Welcome to the With Sayada podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Belonging and Understanding. The podcast that brings to you stories of lived experience that you might not otherwise encounter. This is a podcast that encourages you to cultivate belonging and understand others. I'm your host, author and coach Sayada Zaidi, and every episode I'll be asking a new guest to share their story. Today's guest is Hassan Pandor. Hassan and I met at the Oxford Centre for Muslim Christian Studies Summer School in 2019. Hassan is a student of knowledge in terms of Islamic studies, and he's also a research assistant at SOAS. So welcome to Hassan Abdullah. It's really interesting because this is a guy that I've known for a couple of years. Um, but the first time that I saw Hassan, I was like, how comes I have not seen you before somewhere in my life? <laughs> because you're just so full of knowledge, so articulate, and you're able to take kind of quite complex subjects and, and say things as they are in a way that is both balanced and interesting and kind of makes you wonder, uh, spend a lot of time about the questions and, and what you're posing and kind of like think, well, what can I do to help to solve that challenge and that problem that is presented in front of me? So welcome, Hassan. Uh, thank you, Seda. Um, thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Delightful. Um, it's always a pleasure chatting to you. Um, it's really always very interesting conversations and we always learn so much from each other. Um, thank you for the very generous introduction. I actually have to say that... Uh, where you see balance, um, I always think I'm going over the edge and going too far. Um, and I'm always kind of like uh, trying to say, oh, oh, have you overstepped the mark again? Oh, dear. Uh, but it's kind of, it's reassuring. Like, actually, I did find uh, some of the stuff you uh, fed back to me on very reassuring that, um, that, okay, so if somebody like you happily is seeing a balance and um, not seeing me overstepping the mark, then that's that's good. Okay, I I'm still in the safe zone. <laughs> I haven't blown it yet. So, yeah, oh. yeah. It's funny, there's a, a friend of mine, um, kind of there, um, Bisi Alimi, and basically he presents himself as the angelic troublemaker. And that's a phrase that I've heard before several times. And I always think that I'd like to surround myself with angelic troublemakers. And maybe that's kind of what you are as well. I really like that term. Angelic troublemaker. Wow, that's nice, man. That 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 could work very nicely. Cause I, I do think I do think I am uh, I can be a bit 
definitely a bit of a troublemaking conversation. Uh, to be honest, last night I had a very nice uh, catch up with my siblings and uh, my uncle after a very long time. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just in, 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 a, in a setting, in a conversation where I'm at ease, um, I do like to probe and I do like to take uh, in lines of inquiry or conversation um, as far as possible. And my uncle yesterday, he's, he's quite a... He's quite argumentative type, which is fine. So, uh, and not all, his, not all of his arguments are so good. So it's, it's great to like uh, <laughs> thrash it out with him and also with my sister. So yeah, yeah, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I, I love this phrase. I'm gonna keep that. I'm yeah. making my uh, profile over something at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So, so Hassan, we met at the Oxford uh, Centre for Muslim Christian Studies Summer School in 2019, was it? It feels yeah, like so long so. ago. Eons, um, eons ago. Yeah. yeah, so much has happened since. And, um, and I was wondering, what was it that kind of prompted you to join that summer school? Okay, so... Um, I saw an advert for it on a billboard in a college uh, which delivers um, Islamic courses and uh, I was there studying a super interesting course on the principles of uh, of faith or uh, law, principles of Islamic law uh, with an absolutely wonderful teacher, Syrian teacher. And uh, yeah, I can talk a lot about that subject because it's, it's something I was very passionate about then and uh, this, you know, the, the, I, I just can't express how joyful joyful I am that I was able to do that course with that teacher to have such a amazing comprehensive overview but that's not the point that's not the question okay the question is right I saw it in that college okay and I thought okay here's a residential summer school was it 10 days I think maybe let's just say 10 days you can correct me and uh, it's on it's on a topic uh, which I don't know so much about um uh, Christianity and for me it's just a case this is an opportunity for me to learn and that that's the driving factor um, because first of all what's interesting is is I'm when like let's say let's talk about okay, I'm going to a Christian Muslim summer school it's a residential it's 10 days and uh, I'm going as a Muslim but I know that I'm out of my depth in terms of speaking in terms of you know theology or religion so it's I'm not going there uh, able to shine light on everything that anyone might want to ask. Uh, that's not the point. The point is I'm going there to try and benefit myself as much as I can. Uh, and kind of, it's an opportunity for growth. So learning opportunities, growth opportunities, uh, you know, is always, you know, you're always looking out for these kind of things. And I thought that this, this could be really good. And we can, I'm happy to talk about this for hours because it has been really, really good. And we just mentioned now that it was, it seems like eons ago. Uh, but the great thing is that with our really lovely cohort um, of people that we've had, uh, we are still in conversation almost daily, I could say, I, maybe say, yeah, but we are in very regular conversation. We're still having deep conversations. We're still inquiring. We're still learning. We're growing together. Um, so this, the, 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 our, our cohort growing as a unit over the years. And also we've got a reunion in December, don't we? Yeah. So, so we keep going back. So even after the summer school, we went back in December. We went back again, I think, early 2020. We're going back again this year. So, so it's a relationship. And, and, and actually, this is, this is really valuable. For me, uh, I see um, value in long-term relationships and long-term conversations uh, with people who are not from the same mindset and same background and same origins as me. Um, and 
I think we can only grow when it is long-term uh, and the conversations can only be meaningful when they are long-term. So when we compare to other, I mean, I've just heard these comparisons. I haven't done much other interface stuff. Is it, is it, yeah, sorry, sorry, go, go ahead. Go for it. No, no. No, I was going to say it's a really interesting point that you're making there because I think that the, I, I remember when I left summer school after it finished and kind of was on my way home and, and you know, you feel a real tug of your heart because you're leaving people that have formed another kind of family for you and yet you're going back to your own. So, of course, I mean, I, I, I'm, I was so happy that I was going to go and see my husband and kids again, but I just really felt that kind of like pull towards this new family that had been created within a week. And so it was an incredibly powerful experience. And I've been in places where you've, I felt that kind of loss, but actually the biggest gift about the, the summer school and the way that the Centre for Muslim Christian Studies have curated this is that there is an ongoing conversation and it's not just superficial, it's not sharing memes, it's actually about really deep, deep rich stuff. And I said to you before we kind of started this podcast, you are, we were just talking about something and I said, you know, Hassan, in order for me to be able to participate in that conversation with all the other stuff that's going on, I'd have to clone myself. So that's the <laughs> level of kind of like growth that is available yeah no i i i completely agree with you and also what you say about the emotional side uh that that is absolutely it, it was there i mean i don't think any of us can deny that the emotional pull was there we really did feel like the like a family unit and and it's just that you know uh i think it's just genuine human connection and love yeah. and, and I together think, yeah and and that i think was was the enabler for some of the difficult conversations that we had because there was a mutual respect there was a trust there was a safety and so when we were presented with material that was quite challenging for the Christians and the Muslims and also within all of the different kind of intra-faith groups that we're in it enabled us to be able to to share and grow respect our own positions not feel that we needed to move but also respect the position of somebody else yeah that that is absolutely key uh, so this is the thing that makes it so special and you're absolutely right the love and the the bonding did set the groundwork and it didn't take long i think within a couple of days we were more or less there everyone's relaxed we on the same kind of vibe but the thing is that this is the this is the thing the the difficult conversations no matter how difficult you think one might think this topic is or how controversial it is, in reality, uh, through that respect which you mentioned, it's actually not so difficult. And especially with people of faith. So uh, there's, you know, the, the sharing of faith, uh, that does set the platform. So we do believe in, you know, divine scripture and prophets. And so the basis is there, the platform for understanding is there, that we're starting at a very decent level of mutual understanding already and now to de delve into topics um like one thing that i found quite uh, it was amazing um the, the tutorials the tutorials that we had where we could uh, as a uh, muslims and christians could ask each other in small tutorial groups any question like the the things that's been bugging them most the most uh, no matter how convoluted it might sound or how offensive it might supposedly be the thing is ask it ask those questions 
And then the other party, your colleagues will prepare answers over a couple of days, do the research and come back to you on it. And that was like profound. Okay, fine. And so, so there's some situations in some classes uh, where we end up, the, the class finished at a really, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a shocking, like a shocking point. And I don't know if I want to go into the details. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Uh, but um, a, a statement was made which was absolutely shocking. And I, and I didn't know, is this even historically accurate? How do I respond to this? What to say? And I think everyone was just absolutely silenced, right? Um, and I was silenced because I didn't know how to, how to react and I didn't know what to say. And clearly nobody else did. But the point is that that is great. Uh, I found it absolutely riveting. So now I've just heard something which I've got no idea how to respond to. And I don't know whether it's true. I don't know what level of accuracy there is in it. Um, but I need to find out <laughs> and, and the journey to. And, and that is exactly the point, isn't it? Because it's like, you know, when you're in that safe space and you can bring all of that stuff that's in your mind about, you know, um, uh, other people or something that you don't understand and be able to have that conversation and then get to a point where you're like, actually, I need to go and find the answer to this question is that I think is just a really, really wonderful kind of pinpoint of growth. And even those statements are said that are shocking, actually, to then be able to go for dinner or, you know, we had some fun and games, there were some really silly games played in the evenings and stuff like that. And to then know that the conversation is not going to end until the early hours of the morning. And the only reason it's ending is because uh, for me, speaking for myself, I'm getting old and I need my sleep rather than because it's died a natural death is just a really, really powerful testimony to the importance of these kind of conversations. Yeah, um, and the, the 100%, and that, that is the beauty of it. We did, we did, the class ended and it's, everything's great. We're having a wonderful time at lunch and whatnot. And it's, there's no problem. This is the thing, there's no problem there when the trust is there, the confidence is there, the mutual respect is there. And the answer to that particular question, I found an answer out uh, many months later, because then I started a, course with a really wonderful professor, uh, Ovamir Anjum, uh, who's the Islamic history professor. Um, and I asked him in a lesson, um, is appropriate, at the end of this lesson, he covered the kind of topics that... We're all curious now, what was the question? Like everyone wants to know what's the question. <laughs> okay, so the question was, if I recall correctly, um, the point being made was that if a in class, in historical uh, um, early Muslim empire times, um, if a non-Muslim subject refuses to pay the poll tax, then that person will be killed. And what okay. was the answer? The answer is, I, I, asked, I asked a question to the professor, historically, in Islamic history, has it ever been the case that even a single person has been killed on the basis of not paying the poll tax. Um, and the uh, answer was uh, absolutely not because it's, it's just such a simple answer. It's just, it's just incredible that we couldn't even think of it because we don't know our history. And we don't, we don't understand how historical societies operated and what the laws were. But the answer is so simple because poll tax is an administrative um, issue. If somebody uh, falls foul of administrative issue, uh, you don't send in the... You know, it's not, it's not an army issue, it's not a military issue. So military um, operations are one thing the, to take political control. 
But once that's done, then everything is administrative. Um, and it's number one, uh, the, the, uh, moreover, isn't a poll tax was not taken individually, it's taken collectively. So a village uh, will collectively pay a certain poll tax. Um, and you'll have the administrators come in, whoever the, the tax collectors are coming. And if they, if, if the whole uh, village refuses to pay, then maybe they might send the police in if they have the capacity. Uh, or there'll be so, that some actions taken to um, ad address the situation. But the whole idea that, okay, you didn't pay a tax and this is your penalty, it's like, okay, where's a, where's a correlation? And, and uh, it's, you know. And in some ways, what you're describing really then is, is kind of where we're at now, right? Like if you don't pay your tax bill to the HMRC, you're committing a crime. And at some point you'll get arrested. And depending on the um, severity of it, some action could be taken. So... Yes, but I've I've yeah. learned something today, so so thank you for that. Um, I want to know because we could go off to a million different tangents in this conversation. I want to know why is it that you are interested in um, this research that you're doing because it just is so um, important, and I'm really pleased that someone of your kind of like intellectual capacity and vigor for learning is doing it. But what got you into the summer school? Why are you doing all of the research that you're doing at the moment? Okay, so um, there's some. Okay, so research in terms of um, Muslim-Christian relations. Yeah. Um, okay, so the to, there's the summer school itself uh, for me was a really inspiring uh, event, um, and it fired off so many uh, questions in my mind uh, to do both with uh, the Muslim faith and with the Christian faith, um, and it's 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 with all these. Everything, all these sparks firing off, all these unfinished ideas, unfinished conversations. So the one I just mentioned now, that's a classic example. Something's been said, uh, I need to find out more. And th there were so many things like this uh, across the board. Um, so it actually served, and, and it also the key thing is, it makes you realize, is because I think you have to be in a, in a oh, I, I read this recently in some if the interfaith uh, person talking or writing, and he says you have to be, uh, growth is where the, you you have to you have to have tension for growth. Hundred percent. Right? You need to be in a place of tension for growth, and the, that's what we want. And the thing is, I wasn't in those places of tension to know what I don't know, and to know just how much I don't know. Literally, I don't know anything. Like you know, ground up, ground zero. You know, we need to start up here, right? We are ground zero. We've got all these things firing off, all these questions coming out, and all these conversations to be had and developed, and all these relations to be built, uh, but they have to be built on knowledge. Um, and, and I think the no thing is, in. yeah, the, the, I, I, what I've discovered, and I think that the, the, this kind of phrase that you use, that growth is in the tension, is really, really important and, and, and a great kind of way um, to, to reflect on the work that I do as a coach and perhaps why I'm doing the work that I'm doing because I like to operate in the liminal space, in the boundaries, and just see, well, there is tension in there. You've got to have some level of um, kind of uh, knowledge about yourself and who you are and how you show up and some confidence in that in order to be able to be in that space. But actually, if you can do that, then you can change the world. You know. Yeah, uh, and absolutely. And then, and for me, that change comes through knowledge. So one of the things that I did, uh, well. The, the thing is, nowadays, it's mind-blowing the quality of material, online courses there are. 
And uh, well, one one particular um, organization, institute I've been studying numerous courses with since the summer school uh, has been Al-Balag Academy. And one of the earliest courses, first course I did was um, the philosophy of science and religion, uh, which was a short introductory course, which is, you know, is good, um, wonderful teacher. But then a really meaningful course related to this was um, Quran, Bible and history. And oh, wow. this... This was this was a phenomenal course. A wonderful teacher, Sharif Randawa. Um, he's a graduate student in in maybe Washington University of Washington. Don't quote me. Um, but uh, the idea is that, okay, fine. We've got scripture. Um, how does it fit with archaeology and history? Uh, and the in Christianity, um, not in Christianity, in in academic. In academic studies uh, to do with Christianity, first we had the uh, um, in the early, I think pre seventies, sixties maybe we had the maximalist school where you had some academics. Uh, the case was saying that you know there, there's a very very strong correlation um, between what the Bible says and what archaeology says and what history says, and it's all good. Everything's aligned. Uh, there's no conflict here, right? Mm. Then that shifted, I think, in the seventies. 80s, 90s, to the minimalist school. And the minimalist school is saying, hold on a minute, uh, there's actually massive discrepancies between uh, what the Bible says and what archaeology says. Um, so you move from one, from a very positive position to a very negative position. Then after that, what happens is you find middle ground and you say, okay, right, this is where there's issues. This is where there's correlation. Um, like questions such as was, <laughs> radical, radically skeptical question that was David, the prophet and even oh, the, the, the King David, was he even a figure or is it mythical? Uh, then you've got, now we find archaeological evidence, the Stele Dan, Dan, okay, don't quote me on his name, but Stan Dele, Tele, something like that, where, the, where it says, okay, this, this person that's being referred to here can only be the prophet David or the king or King David. So, you know, this is mm -hmm. your archaeological evidence that he did exist. So now what, now what's the next step? So now th to apply this idea of um, uh, correlating history and archaeology uh, with scripture, both Quran and the Bible, and then comparing the Quran and the Bible in terms of, okay, where are the differences here? It's like, it's a phenomenal learning experience. Like, so it's, it, it takes history from, um, you know, from the time of, like prehistory, like prehistory, uh, from our, our um, creation stories uh, in the Bible and the Quran and other, other creation stories, um, taking you all the way through to, um, our Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So that that was like a, a nice huge sweep of history there in a really analytical way. Uh, sorry, you wanted to... Yeah, no, well, it's, it's interesting because what I'm hearing is that whilst the study is quite rich and exploring different kind of texts and different contexts, actually it's about what is the shared experience? So what are the areas of commonality and, and how, and as well as the areas of difference and how do we kind of like learn from that? Yeah, we need to, we need to, uh, see, one thing is we need to be committed to facts and truth, even though there's a difference between them. Um, and really we have to be truth seekers. So all of this, everything we do is in the spirit of seeking truth and um, we, obviously, uh, as believers, we have our biases, but we need to be aware of our biases and uh, put truth as the ultimate aim. Um, and all of this is an exercise in 
it's, it's only through understanding that we're going to get through to, to truth. And it's only through this kind of inquiry and comparison um, that we're going to be either we're going to say, okay, you know what, we are, I'm very happy with what I believe. And I actually now understand why I believe what I believe. And I understand where it fits historically and archaeologically and, you know, and my spiritual experiences accord well um, and everything's fine. Or you say, you know what, I need to reassess how I've understood this or that. And, you know, I think this kind of inquiry is, is critical in building confidence in who you are as, as, a, as a believer. It's interesting that you that you present it like that because I'm I've always taken the view that um, we're we're kind of essentially told don't follow practices because your parents did it and so it's about asking questions and I think that as um, as Muslims and actually people of other faiths as well I I see the kind of um, the inquiry and the curiosity about why is it you're doing what you're doing has become lost. And so practices happen. You say to somebody, well, why are you praying? You know, why are you going to church? Why why are you going to the synagogue? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and some have lost their connection and it's become ritualized. And so um, I, we see this in, in a broad range of religions within London, for example, which is where I'm at, um, where, where cult, sorry, religious practices have become culture. And so that distinction between doing something and understanding of why you're doing it has become lost. And when I'm listening to you, you're kind of reminding me that everything that we need to do, we need to understand why we're doing it. Yes. So I, I agree with you that that has been lost. And I think it's, we need to go back to basics mm. uh, in, in the sense that, OK, so there's some there's some basic uh the reason why we can interact and we can have conversations and argue um, and debate is because at the end of the day, in all of us, we have um, we, we have a core of what we call logic and we understand what logic is. And it's on the basis of logic that we can debate and say, this is a good argument, this is a bad argument. So the, the fundamental thing is uh, if, if people have lost the idea or the feeling or sensation of, oh, why am I praying? Is it just a ritualized cultural practice? Then you have to think, okay, really, why am I praying? And it goes back to the question of, um, for, for me, there's a couple of key questions uh, or key issues. Number one is the reason why we believe in one God as the creator uh, is because infinite regress is impossible, right? Infinite regress is impossible. And Can I ask you to explain what that means? Because I have no idea. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> infinite regress, basically, um, everything has to go back to a starting point. Things didn't uh, appear out of nowhere. There has yeah. to be a starting point. So the point is that there has to be a starting point. So when you go back, backwards, 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 what was the cause of this? What was the cause of this? What was the cause of that? Uh, you can't keep on going and saying, this was the cause of that, this was the cause of that, this was the cause of that, infinitely. Yep, yep, Ultimately, okay. there was the first cause. Oh yeah, so the, the idea of a first cause. So that's that's so infinite regress is impossible because you have to have logically you have to have a first cause. Our experience is that there has to be a first cause. Okay, mm -hmm. and then number two is uh, why do we believe? Okay, so we okay there has to be a first cause. Um, then the second point is that it is impossible to mix the finite with the infinite or the limited with the unlimited. Logically, 
the unlimited cannot be contained within limited form or space. Um, so like the Islamic pure monotheism is that there is nothing like God. There's nothing unto God. There's nothing like him. And God is unlimited and infinite. And it's only, some, it's, it's only an infinite power with infinite will that can instigate and be the first cause. Mm. Because that's what it requires to be the first cause. And then that infinite, unlimited uh, entity cannot be contained within um, a human form or the, the creation. The, the, the creator and the created are completely different. So even at, even at yeah, so go on. Well, I was going to say, uh, no, please continue. Oh, okay. So, so those those are the those are the key. Uh, I would say like the building blocks. So even when we have a uh, when we see, uh, okay. Then another thing is okay. Another question is okay. Why do we believe? Is also to do with what are the things that science has is out of what what are the things that are out of science's remit, and therefore science can never explain it, has never explained it, and never will be able to explain it. And these, these are things like consciousness, the mm. hard problem of consciousness, and language, um, and spiritual experiences, um, and the supernatural. So even, so some really interesting uh, thing. So there's a, there's, a, there's a, I don't know if you've heard of um, Paul Williams. He runs a YouTube channel called Blogging Theology. Yes. Um, he's very interesting. I find him very interesting. I got hooked onto his material when I, he was doing a lot of book reviews a few months ago on um, things to do with faith. And um, I, I got hooked. I found, I, found his, I found the material that he's introducing to me via the videos fascinating. And uh, it's just becoming even more and more fascinating. Now he's doing a lot of interviews with like, really interesting people. Um, so one thing he, one little short video he made was that, uh, that atheists do actually believe in the supernatural. And one of his most recent videos, maybe I watched it a day or two ago, there was a, it was about a, it was a test I think conducted in Finland, where people of faith and atheists were hooked up to um, some kind of sensors which detect anxiety, uh, maybe to do with the sweat, um, and they were asked to make statements like, um, "May God uh, afflict your mother with uh, death." or something, you know, horrific statements oh. like that, right? Horrific statements. Um, one, so one statement is, may God, and the other statement is, without God in the equation. So may your mother, yeah. listen, you know, horrific stuff. Now, the point is, if you're an atheist, you one might have thought that it makes no difference whether it's, whether you are asking God to do it or whether you just, you know, there shouldn't be any level of concern in either of those statements. But the study found that uh, in the same way that you'd expect a, a person of faith to be very, very anxious when saying something as yeah. horrific as that. I mean, we can imagine how we don't even want to utter those kind of words because we believe that, uh, you know, God is the all powerful and all controlling. Um, but the same levels of anxiety were experienced by the atheists. Gosh. Um, so this, so Paul's uh, summary was that it's, it's fitra, it's, it's innate. Uh, we have a a God 
gene maybe and uh, this goes back to another um, another understanding which i've come to through another course which was phenomenal um and the understanding is that um so we have a survival instinct um we have a reproductive instinct and we also have a sanctification instinct and this sanctification instinct is undeniable um because when we talk about worship we have to ask the question what does worship mean mm. um and worship means in, in the understanding i have of it it means adoration now the thing is that everybody the every person adores something someone some idea everyone is in a state of adoration for something or someone right mm. now the point here would be that worship is to say why are we focusing our energies and devotions to the created rather than the the creator which is who or which is even more worthy or the most worthy of adoration even to the point of exclusively worthy of your adoration um so then which is not to say you just you shouldn't love or adore things because the good things of the life are for us to enjoy yes uh, but once you understand that the point of your worship is to adore the being that is most worthy of your adoration then everything else can fit into place and you're not being pulled this way that way by all these con- competing uh, mm. things competing for your attention and for your love and your devotion and you know you're not you're being so easily seduced by the lesser material uh, things that would otherwise you know attract your yeah attention. And then- and it's interesting because, I mean, the first thing I want to say is I, I hope you can send us a, a link to the research for that and perhaps even that particular podcast because we can link to that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that I would say is that there's there's a really interesting kind of other conversation we could have just about, well, you know, the the kind of desire for materiality and is that a good thing or not? Because I my own view is that... Um, if you're able to, then actually having material possessions um, and desiring for nice things is not necessarily a problem. If it's within your means, if you're not causing any harm to anybody else, if it's ethical and all of those other bits and pieces, but also if you're using that as a tool in which to perhaps even increase your um, appreciation and adoration of God. I, I My own belief is that I don't think that um, any, uh, I have not yet seen anything in Islam that actually requires people um, to live in poverty or to, to not have nice things. And I say that because that is a huge misconception and, I just think sometimes people think that, you know, in order to be holy, you've got to like completely ignore what is available to you in this world. And and my view is we use the things that are in this world as a form of worship. And my link to that is my interest in practical theology really comes from the question which Duncan Forrester, who's one of my kind of practical theology heroes, and his question is, where is God in this? And so that was the piece that really got me interested in practical theology. And so my focus on all the stuff that you've said is very much around where is God and where is mm. God in this? So even, you know, we're, I, I was doing a um, a series of podcasts with um, 
Dr. Edward Stoddard from St. Andrews University, and they're called Conversations in Practical Theology, and essentially would kind of come up with a, a subject, not do a huge amount of homework, and just have a conversation around subjects with the idea being that, that kind of God would guide us to the stuff that was right in that conversation, because the essence of it is, where is God? Yeah, now, um, I, I concur completely with your uh, views on, um, yeah, I, I mean, the thing that whenever this conversation comes up, or this topic comes up, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, uh, God is beautiful and he loves beauty. And uh, all of us are blessed to varying degrees across the world with different blessings. Um, and there's, and we, we, should, uh, we should enjoy the blessings. Um, they are there, uh, God has given them to us, we enjoy them, but we also use them, as you said, uh, in beneficial ways. Absolutely. Uh, wealth, wealth and blessings are not there for us to hold on to and be possessive, or possessive over. They are opportunities for us to benefit others and thereby benefit ourselves. And actually, if we look at somebody like Marcus Radford at the moment, I mean, honestly, this guy is just such an incredible inspiration and exemplar for how to use your wealth for good. You know, like, and, and just to, I mean, what is he now? 23 years old? I like, think so, yeah. Like, you know, I'm old enough to be his mother, you know, and, and I'm just really so sincerely inspired by him. I just think what um, Marcus Rashford has done is just incredible and that a young black man is able to show the kind of formal uh, structures and systems that exist within the UK and around the world of how to really do philanthropy I mean like just like I'm lost for words and and for me uh well I, I really really enjoyed a Guardian article uh, a few days ago I think uh, where it spoke about uh, Rashford Saka and Sterling and it spoke about how they are driven by the Christian faith and it's their Christian communities that they were brought up in um, that inspires their outlook and it's a community-based faith-based outlook making such a profound difference in our world in our in our country that needs it so urgently and, and the question is that if only our you mentioned structures that are um, those within those structures were so inspired by faith then we wouldn't have, we might have a, a far fewer, you know, uh, terrible issues in society. And Yeah, uh, and this us. is actually one of the things that I'm, I'm exploring in my kind of tidying up and finalising my thesis at the moment is the, the whole kind of dilemma and, and question of, you know, how do we um, look at the structures and, and actually kind of, because it is quite rebellious in some ways to say well you know let's just start all over again I think it's about how do we meet people where they are and then explore something from a um, a different perspective but rather than having conversation for the sake of it and um, I think a presentation of the problem has been done in multiple different ways but what's missing is that next piece about well where are the solutions and uh, in my work as a coach um, and in fact, all of the work that I've done, you know, in my life, it's very much kind of like, of course, we want to articulate the problem clearly. But if you're not doing that piece about finding solutions, then what's the point? And then the next thing that's coming to my mind is the hadith of or the prophetic saying of, you know, you tie your camel and then you leave the rest to God. Well, if we only tie the camel and we don't do the next bit, then what's the point? Um, in terms of... Uh 
in terms of changing the structures that be, um, do you have any solutions? <laughs> well, how would you, well, what do you have in mind for that? Well, I, I think the work that I'm starting to do with the concept of belonging and understanding is is really geared about changing macro and micro. Um, and it, it and for me, I've realised is very much about meeting people where they are. And I think some people will find that quite triggering because they don't want that to happen. Then, you know, and I would like a lot of change to happen quite quickly. The fact that my children are still going through similar experiences to do with race and religion and gender as I was going through decades ago is really not a good thing. But mm -hmm. if we don't meet people where they are, then you can't start the right kind of conversation. And what then happens is that I'm having the conversation I want to have rather than the conversation that they want to have and kind of supporting them in order to move forward so that they're, we're kind of like doing the work together as opposed to something being imposed. And so if you look, for example, at why unconscious bias training, why, in my opinion, a lot of the diversity, uh, equity, inclusion training doesn't work right now. It's because it's about pulling people forward and thinking, well, if we just give you the information, behavioral change will follow. It doesn't work like that. You know, it's about how can you start to embed behavioral change by helping people to understand who they are first. Uh, so when you say, so this is what I was trying to uh, understand, when you say meet people where they are, it means that we understand them, we take the time to listen to their views, to understand them as a person, then try and complement or direct or work together towards our goals? It's shared goals. So there shared is goals. no them and us, mm -hmm. right? We're all in this together. You know, and it's kind of saying, well, what is the shared goal of what we're trying to achieve and articulating that so that it so that it's not your goal or my goal. It's our goal. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's, 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 that's really interesting. So it kind of uh, evokes um, a project which I'll be working on soon, hopefully. And it's to do with uh, changing the culture in universities when it comes to topics like you mentioned race and religion um, and changing attitudes. Um, so it's, 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 it's this same kind of idea that you're talking about. The idea that we have here is, is called community of inquiry. And it's about inviting people to, to express themselves fully, um, no matter how difficult it might sound to other ears. But the point is that first you set the boundaries. We make it be known that these are the boundaries. This is how this community of inquiry works. Um, and once everyone feels safe and they know that there won't be any repercussion for saying things which might otherwise be outrageous, perhaps. Um, so once that safety and security is there, then express yourselves and let's, let's talk this through together and see how we can move forward with this. So this kind of resonates. That's why I find the Christian Muslim Center experience uh, so profound, because we did that. Yeah, the you first know, we, thing we did we, when we came through the room was introducing ourselves. And the second thing we did was say, OK, so what are the boundaries? How are we going to operate with each other? And, you know, by the end of day one, you're all kind of sitting thinking, well, I've known you guys for like, you know, my whole life. And clearly that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and the, the good with, with the Christian Muslim Centre, it was 
all that much easier because we were all we all sincere people of faith and as a people of faith our primary objective or we know that it is upon us to care for others and to wish well for others um in a university setting perhaps not everyone has that same kind of mindset so it might be more tricky tricky to navigate um it's interesting, but I, because I, I would argue that I think I know a number of people of faith, but they don't have a religion, right? And so maybe what we're trying to say is that, you know, is it, do you understand what you stand for? Because if you do, then it's easier to articulate. Mm, mm. Yeah, so maybe it's about making people making people aware of that. Yeah that through having these views, uh, this is what you are standing for. And is this something that you're comfortable with? Um, mm. Is Do you want to reassess it? Um, shall we look at it from a different angle? So just uh, inviting those conversations, having those conversations, and basically having that kind of the level of uh, free speech yeah. that's, uh, that's required to tackle, to, to talk it through and tackle it. Um, because as long as people feel inhibited, um, progress is limited, which uh, rhymes yeah. quite nicely there. <laughs> yeah, and and actually that's that's a that's a good kind of writer down because I think we have lots of conversations about you know freedom of speech and um, freedom of identity and all of these things, but actually some of it is I think freedom within a contained environment, so within the space that you're in, and so. Sometimes when people have got something to say that might be a wee bit controversial rather than being able to express it out loud and, and have that conversation to unpack what it is that they're trying to say, it becomes internalised. And then that internalisation of that actually can lead to um, uh, aggression. It can lead to, um, you know, difficult kind of actions and responses to people that are different. And so this kind of community of inquiry that work that you're doing for me is really, really significant and, and very much kind of like in line with some of the appreciative inquiry work that I'm doing um, along and, and facilitating, but doing it in a way that is not just about the kind of academic approaches to things, but doing it, taking that and applying it to a real context and saying, how do we adapt it to make it work rather than tick a series of boxes because this is what the academic paper says or this is what would be done by a professional organisation because sometimes those things just don't work and there's a low, kind of layer of an adaptability that's needed before you can really use that material. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and part of that is um, the, the, to be able to have those conversations with people who are different and of different mindsets as opposed to um, what might be known as being in your own bubble online and locking yourself into these spaces. You need yeah. to break out of these spaces and, and be able to interact and have the confidence to interact. And that's where our parameters and boundaries yeah. come in to give them that confidence. But uh, on a slightly different note, um, on a more structural or organisational level, uh, another really interesting uh, project um, I was involved in uh, was in how to how the university world can understand and work with, well, mutually, how both the university world and the world of uh, Muslim or Islamic colleges in the UK uh, 
how can they work together for the betterment of each other? And uh, this, this we, 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 the project was to do with putting the structures in place, uh, bringing the parties together, um, initiating the conversations, um, working on a, a formal toolkit which explains how the Islamic colleges, uh, the, the syllabus that they have, and how the, what they teach correlates with or matches up to university benchmarks mm. um, for the framework and the different levels. Um, and once, once, once things are mapped out and universities can understand, okay, using our framework, our reference of framework, this is how their academic, uh, their syllabus fits. And this is where they are at each level throughout their six year course. Um, and this is where we meet and this is where we don't meet and this is where we need to work on things where this where the, where the uh, Islamic college community needs to work on their syllabus uh, in this way but the benefit is um, well the, one of the main benefits hopefully uh, when this when the, the, the goal is that once this understanding is there then graduates of the of the Islamic colleges can gain direct access to masters because their their learning has been recognized and accredited and this also creates, and even for if they want to start a diff, completely different new topic, you have to start at an undergraduate level, that's also fine. But the, the acknowledgement is there that the, the, the training and the learning you, are, you, you did in your Islamic colleges is rigorous, it's academic, it matches these standards. And uh, maybe we might need to have a bridging course. Maybe we might need to work on some aspects. But at the end of the day, we can work together. And the university community will benefit. Uh, with uh, influx of uh, other students with a different heritage, we can contribute and enrich conversation. And this is something that we learned. Uh, I was at um, the University of Birmingham at a workshop. And this is what they were saying, that we have a local um, Shia college and the students there are coming into our classes here as some kind of um, maybe a shared module exchange yeah. or bridging program, however it was. But this, you said that the fact that these students are coming here, they enrich the classroom conversation so much. Because they... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because what you're describing in some ways is, um, and, I, and I looked at this kind of like way back when at the beginning of my doctorate, um, but it's just, you know, how have um, the, the Christian colleges formed the connections with the universities? And of course, some of that is historic because the UK predominantly has been a Christian country. And so now that Muslim seminaries are starting, those links that are starting to be formed is really important because... And I would argue that um, even today, actually, where is Islamic studies within the existing university framework? And it's very much kind of like within um, Asian studies or East African studies, or it's a kind of like got an Orientalism bias. But some of this stuff is now starting to change. And having had a look at the report and some of the work that you've done, I think it's, it's really quite um, um it's pivotal in in moving that forward and again i hope you'll share links with us so that we can put that in the show notes so that people can um hopefully not just see the research but also there was the launch wasn't there i don't know if that video yes, is yes. available I'd it is it's available that. via the soas youtube channel and also um uh, sheikh shamsud Duha, his channel mawarid lifestyle yeah um so yeah it's available and we can definitely send the links um one thing you mentioned, we've spoken about it before, I recall, we had a very interesting conversation on uh, Orientalism. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you recall, but I, I, I remember chatting to you about it. Um, but one thing about... Let's uh, define Orientalism for um, the listeners. Go on, you go ahead. 
Oh, um, so I'm more learned in this than okay, me, I, so I, I'm I asking you to do it. <laughs> okay, I, I don't have a, a, a formal definition at hand, but let's just say um, the study of uh, Islam and its history and the Quran, um, which originally is, is, is basically is to, is to study, obviously the point is to study the, the East, to know what it is, um, but historically, which is not a definition, I think we'll have... So a, I've a, looked a up, I've looked up Edward Said's definition, because he it. was the one that kind of wrote the the, the book that introduced yes. the concept of Orientalism. And it, and it says that um, uh, Orientalism is a critical concept to describe the West's common contemptuous deception depiction and portrayal of the east i.e the orient societies and people of the orient are those who inhabit the places of asia north africa and the middle east saeed argues that orientalism in a sense of the western scholarship about the eastern world is instricably linked to the imperialist societies who produced it which makes much orientalist work inherent the political and servile to power. That is an amazing definition. Um, and now that you've gone down the Edward Said route, I have to say, I have to say that um, it's imperative to read Wa'il Halak's uh, work on this. So um, it's on my bookshelf upstairs. Uh, the, but Wa'il Halak is he's an amazing absolutely amazing oh if you give me some names of some books i'll read them but also add it to the show notes yeah his work on orientalism you have to read that if you're talking about orientalism because first of all his critique of saeed is thorough it's it's incredible it's like okay because until then for me i mean i'm just saying in my learning journey uh until saeed was you know the gold standard Okay, and there were there have been critiques of Saeed, so I did do some, uh, I did read some critiques of his ideas when I was, uh, my first module um, for uh, Muslims, what was it? I forget this course, that is, is, is that source? I did a course, Muslim Global Minority or something. Anyway, so the first module we did, we looked at critiques of Saeed. So there's these ideas, okay, he was limited in this center, this issue, but when you get to Halak, now you've got it. Now, now this is, the, I think his first chapter or two chapters. Uh, are mind-blowing and if you if you want to get a full scope analysis of him read that um okay. but the reason why i brought uh orientalism up is f- because whereas previously uh there was radical skepticism uh involved and it was just scathing critiques uh with profound biases uh against the east and against islam and islamic religion um the muslim faith that kind of radical skepticism uh has eroded and the worst skeptics um have even uh recanted or what's the, what's the word they, they they've retracted their views they've retracted their most radical skeptical views where they're trying to um uh delegitimize or trying to say that the 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 the, the, the islamic faith and the quran doesn't stand on its own feet. Whereas mm-hmm. now the academic research and um, the people that work in this field, increasingly it's become evident uh, that historically and archeologically all the claims that the tra- Islamic tradition have made uh, do live up and match up. And so the, so the gap that there was, whereas once upon a time the, uh, the Islamic tradition of learning and their heritage and the Orientalist outlook 
was, you know, miles apart, they're increasingly going, growing closer and closer together. And it's, the, the fa it's really fascinating when you look at, um, you know, the academic research being done today, uh, these, um, the most recent publications coming out. And when they analyze uh, the Quranic text and they bring in to it the latest archeological findings or the latest research on um, the rabbinic tradition or, or, you know, on Christian tradition and they, and, they, and they marry them together and they look at how they interact with each other. And that interaction is, brings you, you know, um, a, a fresh and really appealing and um, interesting perspective. So mm -hmm. now you can understand the Quranic text in, from new ways, in new ways, literally, mm -hmm. uh, because of the new knowledge that's been brought to it. And um, I think that a lot of that, in, in my view, is happening because people are kind of going into academic research and kind of finding a way to be able to do it despite um, some of the structures kind of making it a wee bit difficult. So, for example, for me, I didn't know I wanted to do a doctorate in practical theology, but I knew what I wanted to research. <laughs> and so all of a sudden it's kind of like, OK, so this is the landscape. How do I find my place within it and mm. I think that with some of the research that is now being done perhaps the journey will be easier for people because it'll be the pathway to um, research and study will be a lot easier or, or more accessible. Definitely and one major contribution I think that's that's really helped as well is graduates of British Islamic colleges um, have increasingly been entering academia, yeah. Um, and the like, like I mentioned before, the heritage, the knowledge, the perspective that they bring to academia really enriches it, and it, they have the capacity to marry and show how the two interact in a profound way. Mm. Because I mean, it's I, interesting because if you look at Matthew Said's book, Rebel Ideas, he speaks about why there should be diversity of experience and opinion and, you know, so and, and cognition and things. And when you do that, that's where real growth comes from. Yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. And I think um, it's 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 easier uh, for a graduate of a Islamic theological college to grasp and master the academic world than it would be for an academic to get to the depths of the Islamic tradition required to fully appreciate it and then to apply it. Um, because my experience... I suppose there'll been, be linguistic barriers in the first place, you know. <laughs> there will be. It takes an yeah. immense amount of uh, commitment and uh, many, many years. So, I mean, my experience has been that, let's say, let's say we spend, uh, let's say we commit um, six, seven years, right? Uh, exclude. You're kind of cutting in and out a little bit, Hassan. Yeah, no, don't worry. Let's let's keep. Um, what were you saying, um, Hassan? Yeah, sorry. Um, so I listened to a talk yesterday by uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad. Mm. And it was titled Riding the Tiger of Modernity. Oh. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting talk. Um, so the question is, like, can we literally ride the tiger of modernity? Or is that possible? Um, 
and further into the talk, he talks a lot about this, the, 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 the depth of tradition and what it offers, um, as opposed to the superficiality of modernity and the surface level, the surface level crises that modernity seems to continue to bring. So it's always a crisis after crisis after crisis, but it's all very surface level. Um, whereas the depth of tradition offers, it gives you the stillness, the calm, the understanding, the rooting, the grounding um, for real progress. Um, so it was, and, it was, yeah, go on. Yeah, no, and I, and I think that's probably why we as society are going back to things such as, you know, meditation and mindfulness and being still and all of those other things because it's help, you know, and, and you know, even the simplicity of something like meditation. When I was doing my master's in applied positive psychology, my research was about how can you use a 60-second um, mindful experience to then help you to increase your focus and concentration in prayer. So it's kind of like bring these, these tools and techniques are coming back um, and I think that that is a good thing because they're they're kind of grounded in all different forms of of spiritual experience. I completely agree. Um, and people do need to switch off from our constant stream of distractions. Yeah. And I think this is something you talk about. Um, I, I mentioned I've mentioned to you that I listened to a few of your podcasts there. <laughs> yesterday in preparation for today um and and you do talk about this is that like being uh, one of your um one host uh call it presentism i think but being in the now mm. appreciating where you are at the moment and as you say um your today is never going to come back uh, so making the most of each minute or each mm. hour um so maximizing your time and the way to maximize your time is, is of course, to um, know what you value and what you want to do with your time. Um, and also, as people of faith, we have to we have to prioritize um, uh, a lot. Um, and the way this is a really interesting point, um, which I picked up, um, it's it's to do with sincerity. And um, the idea is that we have different motivations for any task that we do. Um, so we, we always have competing motivations. But the thing about, uh, as a Muslim believer, the thing is to decide and focus and, uh, yeah, to decide that from all these motivating factors, I'm going to make Allah the primary motivating factors motivating factor which is not to deny that you this motivates you and that motivates you and that motivates you but fine let's put all of that in its place let's say i'm doing this action seeking a large favor and for his pleasure not seeking self-gratification or an ego trip or exclusively for the monetary benefits of it or whatever it may be and this is also this overlaps with things that you were saying in, in the podcast I heard about you. Uh, I, I heard you uh, on. Um, oh, I lost my train of thoughts there. Oh dear. Um, but yeah. So the idea is that okay. Let's go, let's go back to the basics. The basics is that how are you when you do when you do oh yes when you do things uh, purely for the last sake. This makes your every action more valuable. And what you mentioned, yes, come back to me. You mentioned that, okay, so even if you're doing 
uh, even if you're cooking for your family, you can view it as a chore. Or you can view it, I'm doing this to serve my family, seeking God's favor and pleasure. And all of a sudden, the act itself becomes an act of reward mm -hmm. and fulfilling and not, uh, not, not burdensome for you. So to make your life less burdensome and to get through those things which are, are less generally less appealing or you know you don't want to be engaged in um it's about you in, oh yes you you the 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 angle you came out from was intention so yeah, I, I came out from the angle of sincerity but you came out from the angle of, of intention but we end up in, in the same place yeah. so we can add value to our every minute by having the right intention or you know thinking about the act that we're doing in in, in a positive way mm. um and so, actually, yeah. that's why if you if you look at the, um, um, if you look at my book, results the art and science of done getting it done. One of the, the the first things I want people to do is to really focus in on their intention because when you've got clarity of intention, then the rest of the stuff follows and it follows quite easily. And and I see and I've done this myself many many times. I still have it in certain aspects of my life. You know, when there's a confusion or a lack of clarity of why you're doing something. It just is harder work or it's not as easy or it becomes more complex or it takes you 10 times as long. But the minute that you know what your intention is, it's just the stuff that's take, you know, the, the stress is kind of removed a little bit. And just coming back to your description, because I mean, I'm very open. I love cooking but I really don't like the mun mundane aspect of cooking. And so I had to really kind of shift how I approach that within my mind because, you know, I mean, literally cooking day in, day out is just, is a bit of a chore. But when you realise, for me, when I realise I'm doing it as an act of service, and so coming back to your description about the layers of sincerity, it's kind of like, of course, you know, I would love to view everything that I'm doing as, uh, as being in service to me worshipping God. And just a quick aside, for those who don't know, Allah is the Arabic word for God. So when Hassan is saying Allah, he's saying God, you know. And so um, when I view that everything that I'm doing is an act of worship, then that box is kind of ticked right? Then if I'm doing it for my, my husband and my kids or anyone else that's eating, then actually that also brings a, a sense of personal satisfaction, you know, and the, the challenge here in some of these things is sometimes we do things just for God, but we don't really experience anything in our lives that will give us feedback. And I think that can be quite difficult to then think, oh, well, you know, I'm doing this for God, but when am I going to know? And I, I, and the way that I've rationalized that for myself is just the realization that sometimes you plant seeds in your life and you don't get the answer for two or three years. And one of the things that I've been invited to do on, on a personal level literally is a manifestation of that. I had a conversation with somebody about three years ago, not really realizing that it would then lead to an amazing opportunity three years later. So you kind of do it and then just leave it and don't intellectualize too much about this stuff because otherwise you get caught up in your own well where's my sense of satisfaction and and anyone who thinks that I'm being quite strategic about it maybe I am but actually maybe I'm also saying the things that you're hearing and you're kind of feeling but no one else has said them because we don't mm. just do things for the sake of doing them you know and how are you receiving that feedback 
Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And it's the thing is that, okay, so the sense of self-satisfaction, um, that's, that is absolutely valid and natural and it's reaffirming, it's reassuring, and that's how we build relationships with each other. Um, and it's very important. The thing that, one thing which, which I like uh, that you just uh, mentioned is the idea that for me, I mean, in my life experience, uh, things will happen in the in the in its own time, in the right time when it's meant to happen, and uh, it completely resonates with me what you said that you did what you did, and maybe you had a goal there, maybe you didn't have a goal, uh, or maybe you have a goal now, but it's not being fulfilled for you at this moment. But uh, <laughs> maybe maybe my... I didn't even know what the goal was. I just maybe, kind of exactly. surrendered to the conversation, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But things will happen when they're meant to happen. And in any situation, you have to just embrace the situation that you are in at the time. And when the outcome comes, then embrace the outcome as well mm. uh, and make the best of it. Um, Philip Merry um, is somebody that, I'm, that I've got a podcast with as well. And he speaks about the concept of synchronicity. And I just think, you know, that's a really, really wonderful way of explaining this because it's kind of like you 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 do something without, of course, you want to have the intention, you know, and, and that piece I think is about me. For example, let's talk about me as a subject. What is my intention in doing something? But I do that and then just kind of surrender the rest of the stuff. And that's where synchronicities come in. And, and you know, as a person of faith, I would say that's where God's intervention comes in. And it's kind of like then allowing the space to see, well, how is this thing going to pan out? Because sometimes it will happen quicker than I want it to. Sometimes it will happen painfully slowly. But at the end of the day, as long as there's not too much attachment to it, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Mm, and I've mm, done mm. my bit. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, is, that, is, that is the faith perspective. Um, one thing about faith that I found profoundly beautiful is that, yes, uh, we view life as a test um, and we don't expect everything to be an easy ride. Um, but the, what's, what's really uh, profound about it is the idea that whatever your situation, if you're in a great situation and everything's going right for you, then the appropriate response is gratitude and profound gratitude and to acknowledge that these are uh, God's blessings and favours. And equally, if you're in a less appealing situation and times are difficult, um, then you still attract the same reward and favour from God, uh, but this is, this is done through patience. So whether you are exercising patience uh, for God's pleasure, rather than um, fight for, you know complaining and saying that oh this is a, a terrible time and whatnot, but you accept your situation, you try to make the best of it, um, and your patience is rewarded uh, as per our faith. Yeah. So I have a slightly different take on that, and some of that actually is is kind of articulated really nicely in um, a book called Musings of a Muslim Chaplain by um, Sondos um, Kholaki, who I'm also interviewing for the podcast. And, um, and, I, and I think the, the reason I'm sharing that is because when we say that life is a test, I think it's about the definition of the word test, right? Mm. And so 
Because we um, in wider society view tests as something that is of hardship and of difficulty and of challenge and things. And I don't want to give the wrong impression. I think there are challenges and difficulties in life. But actually, sometimes the the test or the examination has lots of goodness and richness in it. But if we focus too much on the challenge and the difficulties, we forget and or we don't appreciate or we we ignore some of the beauty that is presented to us. And so that's why I, I kind of know what the the history and, and and that that piece that you shared about life being a test, but I'd like to personally put a slightly different kind of perspective on it. Yeah, no, no I, I I agree that um, it has to be viewed positively, and and yeah, the word itself definitely uh, in its normal use uh, can doesn't match necessarily the way we speak of it. Mm. Uh, from a faith perspective so there, there definitely is that and um, tests and challenges are there for growth like, like we mentioned before it's, it's yeah. about tension uh, tension and growth and through the challenges we grow um, but I think it was the idea is that we shouldn't um, do the opposite and succumb to it 100%. and let it be a cause of despair yes uh, so yeah it's, it's, it's having that positive response to it but mm. I, I fully agree with it with your mm with your elaboration so so Hassan we're we're here at this point I think we've gone on from or spoken for more than an hour or so and I haven't asked you any one of the questions that's on my list <laughs> okay so, well, by the way if you want I'm to get, please do I'm, I'm going to extend an invitation for us to meet again and okay. to, to perhaps kind of explore um a little bit which is um, maybe more personal about your journey and about, you know, how you got to the research that you're doing and, and what inspires you and, and how you as an individual get unstuck and then just some simple questions about, you know, your favourite books, etc. Um, so that's an invitation for, for us to, to hopefully meet again in another with Sayada conversation. Absolutely. And, it's a uh, pleasure. Thank you, Hassan. And as we wrap up, I would love to know, where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Um, well, the unfortunate short answer to that is uh, they can't because I'm not I'm not out there. I, I don't I don't use uh, social media or I don't you know do anything i'm not active in that sense that normally people go to youtube or instagram or this or that but we can find out about your research from um soas right so you've got um yeah so so this is not um it's i think it's a it's it's not my research it's it's just the projects that i've been happily uh, involved in so in terms of the the umset project uh, the universities and uh, Muslim seminaries project. Um, we had the report launch, um, as you mentioned. And um, it, what we can do is, if, if you send me a, a list of the things that we referred to that you'd like links for, yeah, I can forward you to them. Um, we can mm-hmm. send you the report. We send you the the YouTube uh, the launch. It was, it was actually I was very. It was a very very. It was a really good launch, and the, the speakers we had and the contributions they made uh, were uh, amazing. It, it's excellent. I was. You know, I think we were all incredibly happy with the with the launch and how it all went. Um, so yeah, that'd be nice. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. In, in yeah, that respect, okay. it's not. This is yeah. That'd be that'd be great. Just let me know what links you like. Would you like to have? And I'll, I'll send them over. Brilliant. Because I I think that you've got a lot of. Um people are going to be very curious about what they've heard you say and will want to find out a little bit more about the research projects that you're working on. So to give them that opportunity will be a huge gift. And um, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, what a rich 
uh, invigorating conversation for me and I can't wait to have you as a guest again. So thank you again, Hassan. Uh, thank you, Saida. It's always a pleasure chatting to you. Uh, it's, 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 it's lovely, you know, um, how we resonate so well, our ideas and how we, you know, further each other. So, you know, thank you so much. Shukran, Jazakallah. And it's about being in that place of growth together, right? So that's where indeed. we are. Indeed, and indeed. Thank you. Okay. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of With Sayada, I'd appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people find out about the podcast and the work of the Centre for Belonging and Understanding.